Amen. Thank you so much, uh, Brian and your family, for leading us in worship again this morning. We are so grateful for them and for everyone that's here uh, in this building helping us this morning. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I'm sure that you have been thinking about, is um, how different things are and when things come back to quote-unquote normal, what will it look like? What will be uh, different. And uh, I was thinking about 9-11, how different things were uh, after 9-11. Uh, physically, those two towers are no longer there. And I've kind of wondered, uh, when it comes to our family life, our society, our culture, even our church life, what is going to be different? What will remain? Uh, what is really important is what I'm really getting at this morning. And uh, my prayer is that whatever God is doing, and I think I, I know some of the things God is doing. I certainly don't pretend to know all things that God is doing with this crisis. But uh, I really hope and believe that he is uh, burning down some of the things that we don't need. Uh, helping us to realize some things that we can do without that we don't have to build those things back up just because we've always done it. Maybe we've seen in these weeks that there are some things that don't have to be rebuilt. And uh, so today as we continue in this series, Return to the Lord with All Your Heart, I want to talk about probably the most prevalent and dangerous reason we may find ourselves distant from God. We started this uh, return series with look, looking at Adam and Eve and how it was temptation that drew them away from God. Then we talked about the prodigal son, how he traded his relationship with his father to revel in the things of the world. And then uh, last week we talked about Thomas and Peter and the disciples and how their disillusionment or their unbelief or their denial or their division from one another uh, led them away from closeness to God. But today, I believe I'm going to deal with something that's probably the most dangerous reason, the most prevalent reason Christians find themselves distant from God. And it's not just an action like succumbing to temptation or a series of actions but why it's so dangerous is because it's a heart condition. And a heart condition that often goes unnoticed. Well, what is that heart condition? Well, I would call it uh, a divided heart. Or half-hearted devotion to God. And I've been reading uh, in my Bible this uh, last several weeks uh, through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, and so all of listing talking about all the kings of Israel and all the kings of Judah, and you know only a very few of those kings were wholly devoted to God. You could probably name them on one hand. How many were truly wholeheartedly devoted to God? And that's a sad commentary for the leaders of the people of Israel. But I wonder if it speaks to modern believers today. How many of us truly are wholly devoted to God? So 
that's what I want to talk about this week. And I want to introduce it with three scriptures. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. I've used this one many times, and it's one that continues, God continues to speak to me about my own life. And I want to use it this morning as God would speak to all of us. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. He's talking about half-hearted devotion, that half of your heart is, is following God and, and half is doing what you want to do or, or serving some other uh, God in your life. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be loyal, devoted to one, and despise the other. And he says, you cannot serve God and anything else. It's just impossible, not only spiritually speaking, but physically speaking. James 1.8 talks about... Um, People who have a divided heart. And this is out of the New Living Translation. James 1.8 says, Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they're unstable in everything they do. You see, that's a problem with Christians who have a divided heart, who are not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, and to the church at Laodicea, He said, he said You're neither cold nor hot. Now, you've heard messages on that before. So in other words, God might be saying, you're, either, uh, you're neither dead set against me or completely on fire for me. You're just kind of somewhere in the middle. You're just kind of half-hearted. And God, Jesus said that kind of stuff makes him sick. God spews us out of our mouth because of that half-hearted devotion. And it causes us to be unstable in everything we do. Everything we do, think about it, makes churches unstable, makes families unstable, it makes our culture unstable. Everything is unstable because of Christians who are half-hearted to the Lord. That's why David prayed in Psalm 86, 11, Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, uh, another version would put it like this, Give me an undivided heart. That's our ought to be our prayer. God, give me an undivided heart. So as I was thinking about what God would want me to say today to you, and as we're talking about returning to the Lord, and I certainly believe that this crisis that we're in, one of the things God is wanting to do through or to his people is bring them back to him, to a whole hearted devotion to him, that we don't go back to the way things were. And we're going to talk about some of those things today. That some of the things that have died need to stay dead. They need to stay buried. We don't need to resurrect them again. What needs to be resurrected is wholehearted devotion to Jesus Christ. And so I came uh, to this in my Bible that I'm reading uh, every day. It's called the Daily Walk Bible. I ordered it through the Walk Through the Bible Ministries. And each day it has an introduction to the reading of that, uh, the Bible reading that day. And um, on this particular day I was reading, it talked about symptoms of a half-hearted devotion to God from the life of King Rehoboam. Now, I'll give you a little history here. Rehoboam was David's grandson. Uh, of course, after David died, Solomon, his son, became king. After Solomon died, then his son Rehoboam became king. Well, of course, we know that nobody was as great a king as far as loyalty and devotion to God as King David was. 
And certainly as the generations went down, we see that the loyalty to God went down. And that is certainly the case with Rehoboam. But so this Bible that I was reading gave this little five bullet point um, symptoms that I wanted to share with you today. So these bullet points are not of my thoughts, but come from this uh, daily Bible that I've been reading. So the first symptom of a half-hearted devotion to God from the life of Rehoboam, and I think we can see in Christians' lives today that he mentioned are words and actions that promote division and not peace. Now let's think about that for a moment. How do my words and actions promote peace? How do they promote unity in my family, in my job, and in my church? Listen to uh, 2 Chronicles 10, verses 1 through 14. And let me get in 2 Chronicles, lest I read 1 Chronicles. That wouldn't be the right place. All right, 2 Chronicles 10. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, that Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Then they sent for him and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the burdensome service of your father, speaking of Solomon, and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So Rehoboam said, Come back to me after three days. And so the people departed. Then Rehoboam, King Rehoboam, consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived, saying, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you're kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give? How should we answer the people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Here's how you should speak to these people. Your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges or scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. So the king answered these people roughly. He rejected the advice of the elders. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add, it, add to it. My father chastised you with whips. I will chastise you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And what happened as a result of that is the kingdom was divided. So 11 tribes left, and Rehoboam is left with one tribe to rule. So it divided the kingdom right there where it was a unified kingdom because of these harsh words and actions, it caused division. That was, that's one evidence of half-hearted devotion to God. He, he wasn't paying attention to the godly advice that he had received. So how am I, how are you promoting division? Well, one of the ways that God's people can promote division is through criticism. Criticism, judgment of others, passing judgment on other people. And 
This is a common thing, unfortunately, among Christians. We would think that Christians would be better off than that, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Critical, fault-finding, judgmental believers. That promotes division, and that is a symptom of half-hearted devotion to God. Another symptom uh, or another way that we promote division is through unforgiveness and bitterness. And that is unfortunately rampant in the church of Jesus Christ as well. That people get their feathers ruffled and you find it, you know, if you can't, there's some church members you can't find. You could hire a PI to find them and you just can't find them. They've been down the aisle of this church. They, they shook the preacher's hand. They maybe committed their life to the Lord Jesus Christ or so they said. They, they united with this church fellowship. Maybe they got baptized and, and, and maybe they came for a few weeks or maybe they never darkened the door again, but you can't find them. Why? Because something happened. Somebody said something, or they didn't get what they thought they should have gotten, the attention or some position or something, and they became bitter. And so they drop out altogether. You know, it's funny that Christians do that with church, but they'd never do that with their job. You see, if their boss said something to criticize them, they wouldn't quit. You know why? Because it meant their paycheck, which tells you what's more important to some Christians is their back pocket instead of their front, their heart to God. But it's funny how church members or Christians will drop out of church because they're mad at somebody or somebody said something that hurt their feelings. But see, these are ways that, that symptomize our lack of devotion to God. Now, I want you to hear how Christians are supposed to behave. How Christians can promote peace and unity in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary building up edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Verse 31, let all bitterness wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now that person, you're sitting there this, this morning, you're watching this, you're hearing this, and you're thinking of somebody that you have a grudge against. You're thinking of somebody that you're at odds with and you've been at odds with for many, many years. That's the person God wants you to get on the phone with right now, today, maybe even turn this service off, pick up the phone and call them and make amends with them. That's one of the things God wants to rebuild during this crisis. He wants to tear down the walls of bitterness. He wants to tear down the walls of division and criticism and judgmentalism. And he wants to build up the spirit of peace and unity in the body of Christ. So if you're thinking of that person, that's the Holy Spirit of God saying, put this device down and pick up the phone or cancel Facebook, cancel YouTube, and call that brother or that sister. And you make amends with them right now. That's what God's wanting you to do. That's a symptom. That's a sign of wholehearted devotion to God. That you're willing to get right with anybody for any reason. You're willing to swallow your pride, humble yourself, and get right with that person. Because you know what? You cannot be right with God and wrong with somebody else. That's half-hearted devotion. If you're wrong with anybody at work, at home, or church, or anywhere else, you cannot be wholeheartedly right with God. Number two, symptom. By the way, Colossians 4, 6, here's what the Bible says he wants us to be like. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer 
each one. Our speech must be seasoned with grace. Here's another symptom that he mentioned of a half-hearted devotion to God, relying on our own strength and wisdom rather than God's. Look at the life of Rehoboam back in Second Chronicles, now in chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Now when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled from the house of Judah and Benjamin 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel. Now see, the kingdom's divided now. There's the kingdom of Israel in the north. There's the kingdom of Judah in the south which is only one tribe, the, Israel had all the other 11, and now they're going to go to war, okay? And he, Jeroboam, Rehoboam is trying to restore the kingdom. He's trying to reunite the kingdom back to himself, he thinks. But the word of the Lord came to Shimei, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your brethren, let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me, says the Lord. Therefore they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from attacking Jerusalem. So what Rehoboam was trying to do here, he was trying to bring the kingdom back together in his own strength, 180,000 warriors. He was going to go against the, his own brothers and sisters and try to reunite the kingdom in his own strength and in his own wisdom. He never sought God. He never, he never asked God if this is something he ought to do. In fact, we find out that God, from this prophet who spoke to him, that this division of the kingdom was from God. This is what, what said, this thing is from God. How do we rely on our own strength and wisdom rather than God's? How do we uh, manifest this symptom of half-hearted devotion to God and relying on our own strength and wisdom. Well, one of the ways that God convicts me too often is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. You know, when, when we don't pray, when we don't bring things before God, and when we act before we talk to God about it, you know, you look at the life of David, and David hardly did anything without asking God about it. The one time he decided to do something before he asked God, God stopped him. You remember what that was? That was him saying, I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build a house for God. He just had this great idea. He said, you know what? I live in a, a house paneled with cedar, but God lives in a tent. I'm going to build God a house. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? I'm going to build a church. Sounds like a good plan. Who would be against that plan? God was against it. God was against David building him a temple. And, he, and so David tells the prophet, hey, Nathan, I'm going to build God a house. Nathan said, go for it, David. You got my blessing. But that night, God showed Nathan, uh, David, you go back to David and you tell him he's not the one going to build my house. I'm going to build David a house, a dynasty that will last forever, on which the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will one day sit. It'll be David's son, Solomon, who'll build this temple. You see, that's what we do sometimes. We get a good idea. And we think it's a good idea. Or we, we think, oh, this is what we've always been doing in church or what we've always done is our, in our business or our family. That's something we need to resurrect after this crisis is over. Not so. God wants his people to pray and seek his face. What is it, Lord, that you say that you want to stay dead after this crisis is over? What is it that you want to resurrect and rebuild? Lord, what is it? We don't just go back to business as usual. God wants us to stop and to think and to pray and to seek his face. God, what is it? And it may sound like a good idea. Oh, we want to build a church. That's a great idea. 
But is that God's idea? Prayerlessness, not seeking the Lord, is relying on our own strength and our own wisdom rather than God's. Avoiding the Scriptures is another, another way we rely on our own strength and wisdom. We don't read the Bible. That's why I, and sometimes it is where I make myself. You know, there, I've told you this before. Some days I can't wait to get up and read my Bible. I read the Bible through every year because I believe that's what God would have me to do. In fact, when a person was, was crowned king in the Bible, they gave him a copy of the book of the law that he was supposed to read. And so I make myself read the Bible through every year. Most days, I enjoy it. I look forward to it. But listen, I'm a man. And there are some days I'm tired. There are some days that it's more duty than delight. But I'm still going to do it. Because I believe God wants to speak to me. And it's me depending upon Him and His wisdom and His Word that guides my daily decisions. But it's interesting how many Christians who would say to me, those of you who are listening today would say, I believe the Bible is God's Word. Yet one-third of you don't ever read it. One-third of LifeWay Research just completed last year, 2019, found that one-third of church-going Christians, church Go, I'm not talking about Christians who never go to church, which that's a misnomer, but uh, church-going Christians, one-third never, uh, don't read their Bible every day. One-third. That's sad. And about 27% say they only read it a few times a week. And fewer than that say they read it once a week. And fewer than that say they read it a few times a month or once a month. Close to one in eight admit they rarely or never read the Bible. And in 2016, LifeWay study found one in five Americans say they have read all the Bible through at least once. One in five. You know, we say the Bible is God's word, but have you read it? Or you just pick at it? You know, I have, I have chickens, and chickens peck. They hunt and peck. I throw the food out there, whatever it is, they hunt and peck. And all day long, that's all chickens do all day long. They're out there scratching and hunting and pecking. And that's how many Christians approach the Bible. They scratch for a, a good word, and they peck at it. They peck at it. How many times have you read, you need to be reading the Bible, the whole counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation. You don't necessarily have to read it in order every year, but you need to be reading the Bible. Because when we're not reading the Bible, we're saying to God, Lord, I can trust my own wisdom. That's half-hearted devotion to God. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. You know, we're leaning on our own understanding when we don't read the book. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. We're not acknowledging Him when we ignore the book. And He will direct your paths. You see, half-hearted devotion, half-hearted Christians avoid the Bible. They don't read it. They think they can handle life on their own. That's why marriages are falling apart. Christian marriages are falling apart at the same rate world's marriages are because they're not following the book. The world ought to be able to look at Christian marriages and say, how come is it 99.9% of Christian marriages succeed? While ours, half of ours, over half of ours are falling apart. They ought to be able to see a difference. Another symptom of half-hearted devotion to God is, is distorting God's plan and purpose for the family. 
Go back to the life of Rehoboam in 2 Chronicles chapter 11. And let's read verses 18 through 21. Then Rehoboam took for himself as a wife Mahalath, the daughter of Jeremoth, the son of David, and of Abihel, the daughter of Eliah, the son of Jesse. And she bore him children. And I'll skip those names. Verse 20, after he took Micaiah, the granddaughter of Absalom, and she bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shilamoth. That's interesting names. Now Rehoboam loved Makkah, the granddaughter of Absalom, more than all of his wives and his concubines. For he took 18 wives and 60 concubines. 18 wives and 60 concubines. You say, what about Solomon? Yeah, well, Solomon's guilty as well. Solomon had hundreds of concubines and hundreds of wives. So did Rehoboam. They distorted God's plan and purpose for the family. Think about this. How many uh, Eves did God create for Adam? One. If God wanted a man to have more than one wife, he would have brought a bunch of Eves to Adam. And he would have said, instead of calling them woman, he would have called women. That's not what the Bible says. He called her woman, single. Not plural, single. What was God's original intent for the family? One man, one woman, one lifetime. But see, half-hearted devotion, half-hearted devotion to God, we distort God's plan and purpose for the family. Many ways this is done. Men who aren't leading their families spiritually. You know, men have a tendency to be passive. In other words, We'll just sit back spiritually and let my wife take the spiritual lead. That's rebellion against God. That's half-hearted devotion. Men who are watching, you need to be the one leading your family, leading your wife in the Scriptures and in your family in the Scriptures and in times of prayer. You need to be the spiritual leader. You say, well, it feels awkward. It feels weird. My wife is better at that. My wife has more knowledge. It doesn't matter if your wife has more knowledge of the Bible. It's out of order, biblically speaking, for her to be the spiritual leader. That's your job. Put on the pants. There are men like, say, I like to wear the pants in my family. Well, wear them. Put the spiritual pants on, too, while you're at it. Be the spiritual leader. Don't be a half-hearted follower of Jesus Christ. Another way we distort God's plan and purpose for the family is we bail out on our marriages. When things get heated, we, we look for the divorce court instead of reconciliation, instead of forgiveness, instead of uh, uh, kindness and tenderheartedness. Many causes for divorce. Sexual immorality is one of them. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus give some type of divorce exception for sexual immorality? Yes, he said that. But at the same time, Paul said in Romans, he said, but they're willing to stay. You see, I've counseled some couples who have gone through sexual immorality where one or the other of them had affairs. But they were able to reconcile and to forgive and now their marriage is more beautiful than it was even before. You see, you can still repair that home by repairing the heart. But the breakdown of the home the sexual immorality, the, the lust, the pornography, all of those things are, are distorting God's plan and purpose for the family. Another one is busyness. Busyness. 
I think that's one of the things God wants to stay dead after this crisis is over. You know what would be sad to me, and I believe sad to God, is if we go right back to being just as busy as we always have been once this is over. I believe that would be a sin in the eyes of God. Where families who are now enjoying dinner together at the dinner table every night go back to the same foolish busyness that they hated, but they didn't know how to stop. Well, God stopped it for you. He put a brake on that rat wheel, and he's let you get off, and you're enjoying it. It would be a shame, and I believe even a sin, to go back to the same stupid rat race we were once in. I think that's something God wants to stay dead. And you as families, you as dads, dads, it's going to fall on you, dads, as the spiritual leader of the family, even if culture goes back, for you to say as the man of the family, we're not going back to what it was. We're going to make a difference. That's why he says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, you're to lead your wives and love your wives. Wives, you're to respect your husband's. Children, you're to obey your parents. Fathers, you're to, to and mothers, you're to um, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We don't have time to read the Bibles with our kids. By the time we get them home from the ball fields, we've got homework to catch up on. Then we're so exhausted, we've got to put them to bed. Oh, by the way, we had to have supper on the way home because we don't have time to cook it and eat dinner around the table. Who has time to read the Bible to your family, to your children? You do now, are you? You see, all these symptoms of half-hearted devotion, God is getting rid of for us. It would be a shame to put those things back into place. Here's another symptom that was listed in that Bible I was reading. Worshiping God only when it's expedient for you. Go back to our text in 2 Chronicles chapter 12. We're in chapter 12 now, verse 1, about Rehoboam. Here's what it says. Now, it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom. Now, he's yeah, he had established the kingdom. He still didn't have all 12 tribes. He's still just ruling over the tribe of Judah. But he had established the kingdom. He strengthened himself. So everything's going good now. He's finally resigned himself to the fact that he's just going to rule one kingdom. And now everything's on the up and up. Everything's looking good. And here's what happened. He forsook the law of the Lord, and all Israel forsook the Lord with him. When things were going good, you know, he needed the Lord when things weren't so good. You know, I see this happening in church people's lives today. They come together for worship when there's nothing better to do. I wonder if we had the freedom to move about as we normally would. Yeah, this building's empty today, but today's such a beautiful day. I wonder if if things were normal, where would the people be? Would they be at the beach, the mountains, the lake, the golf course? There's nothing better to do. Today's such a beautiful day. There's plenty of things to do you can be doing outside, but, well, only I'll worship God when it's expedient. I'll worship God when there's nothing better to do. I'll put sports and, and other social activities on the, back on the burner when things get back to normal. 
You know, I remember a day, and, and I know people make fun of old-timers when they say, I remember, the, I remember a time when. Well, I'm old enough to remember a time when, even when, since I've been in Thomasville, Georgia, when Wednesday night was still sacred, when coaches and schools still respected Wednesday night. They didn't practice or play on Wednesday night. I remember, even since I've been in Thomasville, Georgia, when, when there was a respect for Sunday morning and the Lord's Day. Even since I've been in Thomasville, Georgia, that respect for the Lord's Day has declined. And we have seen Christian people, good, what I would say, good Christian people, make bad decisions and put the church and worshiping and gathering together in the Lord's name on the Lord's Day as just an extra when there's nothing better to do. Tell you what, if Christians started standing up and saying, no, we won't practice and we won't play on Wednesdays or Sundays, I guarantee you there wouldn't be enough people to show up to practice their games. The coaches would have to say, go back and say, well, you're right, we better not do that. That would happen. You know, when things are going good, we have a tendency to forget God. We worship God only when it's expedient. And here's the last one. It leads right into it. But we acknowledge God only when we feel helpless. When things are good, when the kingdom's established, we forget God. But when God puts the crunch on like he's put the crunch on this society and your personal lives, and then we start seeking God and we start crying out for God. We, we start begging for relief. In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, after verse 1, said he forsook the law of the Lord. It says in verse 2, and it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. So God brings a foreign power to attack Rehoboam and the capital city, Jerusalem, because they had forsook the Lord. And the king, the, the king of Egypt brought 1,200 chariots and 60,000 horsemen and people without number who came with him out of Egypt. The Lubim and the Sukim and the Ethiopians. I don't know who the Lubim and the Sukim are, but they sound like some bad dudes. So this horde of peoples coming against Jerusalem. And he says he took, the king of Egypt took the fortified cities of Judah, and now he's banging on the doors of Jerusalem. Then Shimei the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak, the king of Egypt, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, You have forsaken me, and therefore I have left you in the land, into the hand of Shishak. In other words, God's saying, Because you have half-hearted devotion to me, I am bringing this horde against you. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves, and they said, The Lord is righteous. Now when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shimei, saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. Some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they will be his servants, and they may distinguish my service, so that they may distinguish my service from the service of the kingdom's of the nations. So here's Rehoboam, worshiping God only when it's expedient, but when the heat comes back on, when things start going bad again, he cries out to God for help. You see the parallel, don't you, before I even say it. 
when we get bad news, when we're in desperate need, when God puts the crunch on. And 9-11, I opened this message talking about 9-11. And you remember that, if you remember in this church what was going on when when 9-11 happened, do you remember that we were in revival? Do you remember Brother Gene uh, Williams was preaching revival? We had started it that Sunday morning. Come Tuesday morning, we learn about 9-11. Brother Gene changed his message, preached a powerful message for us as a church. I remember what I was doing. I know you do too that day. And I remember how people were turning to the Lord in the masses. But you know what I remember one year later? I even have the sermon in my file still. It's entitled, One Year Later, No Real Change. That's the title of the message that I preached one year after 9-11. Because one year after 9-11, everything went right back to normal. The only thing that's different is you don't see those twin towers there anymore. It's the only thing that's different. What a shame that that's all that happened after this crisis. What a shame. When we get bad news, we, we, in desperate need, we cry out to God. But listen to what Psalm 78, verse 34 says through 37. This is descriptive of the people of God. When God slew them, they sought him. And they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast with him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Because if you look back at the history of the Jews... Of Israel in the Bible, you see that when God brought, especially the book of Judges, that when God brought trouble against them, they cried out for help. They repented. They turned back to God. But as soon as the judge delivered them, and as soon as things started going back to normal, they went right back to their old sinful ways. And God raised up another problem. Listen, it's going to happen again and again and again until God's people decide we're going to follow God with our whole heart. He's going to keep bringing stuff, keep allowing stuff to come into this world and into this nation and against his people until we decide we will serve the Lord only. Look at verse 10 of 2 Chronicles chapter 12. This is what happens when we're not serving God with our whole heart. Verse 9 says, The king of Egypt came against Jerusalem, took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. So he took away all this gold and silver from the temple, all the gold and silver from the king Rehoboam's house. He took everything, uh, carried it away. Now verse 10, Then king Rehoboam made bronze shields as substitutes. You see... How can bronze compare with gold? I don't hear commercials. I hear commercials all the time. Invest in gold. Buy gold. Invest in gold. Silver coins. Gold coins. Silver bars. Gold bullion. I never hear any commercials. Invest in bronze. Bronze. Bronze is the new thing. Invest in bronze. I never hear that. Why? Because bronze is worthless. (laughs) And that's what Rehoboam has done. So God comes in and takes all the gold through the king of Egypt And Rehoboam substitutes it with bronze. And that's exactly what the people of God are doing. They're substituting things of lesser value for wholehearted devotion to God. How often 
we settle for a mediocre relationship with God. Look at verse 12 of chapter 12. When Rehoboam humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him so as not to destroy him completely. And things also went well in Judah. We settle for this mediocre relationship with God. Where if everything's going good, we're just okay. We may read our Bible some. We'll go to church and we'll enjoy the worship and enjoy the fellowship. But we're not too sold out. We're just mediocre. It's what we settle for. That's what Rehoboam settled for. How do I know that? Well, look. Let me read something in the life of, of another king. Chapter 25. 2 Chronicles in verse 2. Amaziah, another king of Judah, says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with his whole heart. Those words, honestly, haunt me. I've asked the Lord, Lord, is that true of me? I do what's right or what I think is right, but am I doing it with a whole heart? Am I just settling for mediocre walk with you? I read this this morning in that Bible, my daily walk Bible. We tend to leave pockets of resistance. Here's what the author of that of the, uh, that devotion wrote. And I'm probably going to have to put my glasses on to see this. He says, there are two parts to any military conquest. The initial assault and the mopping up operation that deals with any lingering resistance. Keeping that in mind, consider this principle that holds true both in military and spiritual realms. Pockets of resistance, if left unchallenged, can lead to rebellion. Dealing with those pockets is not optional. It's essential if complete victory is to be achieved. He says, study the life of good King Joash, and you will quickly detect some pockets of resistance in his spiritual life. His idolatry, his insensitivity to the message of God's prophet, his cruelty after the gift of kindness. How about you? Are there any areas of your life that have become pockets of resistance, such as your finances, pride, time with God, gossip, your thought life, time with family? Pick an area of resistance and deal with it today. Challenging words, pockets of resistance. That means I'm reserving a part of my heart that I want to keep to myself. I'll give all the rest of it to God, but this little part, that's playtime. That's where I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that's that pocket that's going to keep me defeated and leads to open rebellion again one day. You see, the summary I just read in 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 12, 12, that things went well in Judah. You think, okay, well, Rehoboam humbled himself, and he was all right after that. Look at the summary. At the end of every king's life in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel through 2 Chronicles, you find a beginning and an end, an introduction to his life, and a summary of his life. Here's the summary of Rehoboam's life in 2 Chronicles 12 and uh, verse 14. 
And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. The New Living Translation says, And he did evil because he did not seek the Lord with his whole heart. That's the summary of his life. Oh, he may have been an okay king, but the Bible says he was evil because he was half-hearted. Listen, God's not pleased with half-hearted devotion. That's still an evil heart. And it demands full repentance. You know, it was Rehoboam's grandson, Asa, that God spoke these words to in 2 Chronicles 16.9. By the way, the introduction of Asa's reign was that he was a good king. But listen to what God told Asa through the prophet. He spoke these words to Rehoboam's grandson. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. If you remember the very first sermon I preached in this series back in August, with your whole heart, I used that verse. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord are roaming throughout the whole earth. He's looking for the man, the woman, the boy, the girl, who's going to have a completely devoted heart. When D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, heard those words and read that verse, he said this. I would think it would be appropriate for us to say it. He said, by the grace of God... I'll be that person. Would we say that today? Lord, I want to be that person. I want to be the person whose heart is completely loyal to you. Here's a want ad, a classified ad based on that verse that comes right out of my daily walk Bible devotion. It says this, a divine classified ad, wanted, people with a heart loyal to God. No age limit, no experience necessary. Educational background immaterial, physical limitations no problem, open to anyone regardless of race, color, sex, or national origin, equal opportunity employer, no mandatory retirement age. Will you answer that ad? How do you answer that ad? Let's bow our heads and answer it this morning. Would you bow with me? Dear God, I admit to you that I have been guilty of half-hearted devotion. Of not having a heart that's completely loyal to you. Will you please forgive me and cleanse me with the blood of Jesus Christ? I answer your ad today, Lord God. I want to be that man whose heart is completely devoted to you with no pockets of resistance. I want you to have all of me because you gave me all of you when you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. This day forward, I am recommitting my whole life to the Lord Jesus Christ. To love Him, to seek Him, to serve Him, 
to obey him, to trust him, and return to him with all my heart. Thank you for your grace that allows me to do this. Thank you for your mercy for not giving me what I really deserve. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who will energize me to be that man. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.